Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Films are not locked at any given point. They should have a breath and they should be revisited. Our fondest memories of the past are relics that we peer at through the hazy mist of rose-tinted goggles. They shouldn't be messed with or played with, lest that memory be ruined. It's why it's often a bad move to revisit your favourite childhood TV series. Power Rangers is just not as good as you remembered it to be. Some memories are best left as memories. So knowing that, how do we as filmmakers or storytellers reimagine a story that's been told before while preserving its authenticity? It's a challenge Disney has been grappling with since it began to release live-action remakes of its classics. How faithful to the original should you be? There's a real art to it. And clearly you can make it work, otherwise we wouldn't have a whopping 48 different versions of Dickens' A Christmas Carol. But we do. The trick is understanding that there is never just one way to tell a story, and that a story is never finished being told. Our last guest, Professor Sir Richard Evans, told us... History is constantly being rewritten... The past needs to be revisited because as time moves on, technology evolves, conversations change, and storytelling needs to keep pace. Today my guests are the gatekeepers of some of our most treasured memories. They're both film archivists, Andrea Callas at Paramount Pictures and James McCoskey at American Zoetrope. Chapter 1. Paying Respect The reason we have an innate suspicion of remakes or remasters is because of the love and reverence we hold for original works. What we sometimes forget is that directors often do away with so much of their work before the final release of a film. Maybe it didn't quite work in the edit, maybe it pushed the runtime too long. But as an audience, you don't know what you don't know, and what you've missed out on could make you fall in love all over again. Today's episode is a showcase of that sentiment. We've reordered and rejigged this conversation, and you'll never know how the original sounded. You might love the episode, but perhaps you might have preferred it better before the edit. We start by discussing the remastering of Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now and the role of the archivist in assisting in the reimagining of a film while keeping its memory intact. People have very, very personal connections to movies. Um, so you have, a, you have a feeling of responsibility to make sure that their connection is not disturbed when you're working on a film. When people walk through and they see an object, like a, a costume or something like that, and then you can see in their eyes that brings back a very a specific and unique moment when they watch that movie for the first time. Um, so that, that is there and that personal connection that people have to movies is, is part of it. But the other part that's really an incredible opportunity is when you work on a restoration, you get to know a movie and it feels like some, almost like a relationship with a person sometimes. You get to know the, the amazing parts of it, maybe the not so great parts, maybe the problems. Um, but over time, just like a great person, the longer you spend with it, the greater and greater and greater it becomes, especially a great movie you become to appreciate it on a much more significant level. And it goes beyond that connection to that sort of touch point with people into a level of art you really start to understand and the the incredibly complexity of that art form. On the restoration side, I just want to point out that 
you know, we take it really seriously just when we restore or remaster a film, what we're doing. Um, and we try to work with original reference materials, or in this case, we're, at, we're working with a director. It's really important for us to try to respect the original uh, material, but the audience um, is, is, part, you know, is definitely plays into that. And I have had circumstances where we are actually following what the original film looked like, but because there was another version of the film that was out there that audiences saw, what we did didn't work well with them. You know, it's an interesting part of the restoration and preservation process. I do absolutely believe that when you make things look and sound as incredible as they can for the latest and greatest um, display technology and sound technology, that people will appreciate a movie more. I really do. I mean, I think there is a huge difference between a badly scratched up print that was recorded to a VHS cassette versus something that's been scanned and color corrected and um, cleaned up respect respectfully. I think people will, because you respected that film, they will appreciate it. Yeah, I find it interesting subject. And I, I guess I write a very good, uh, but my foot in both worlds where, you know, with Apocalypse Now, uh, where we worked on the restoration recently on it, uh, we know people have this deep emotional attachment to the original version, you know, in 79. Uh, we, we know uh, with, when Francis did Apocalypse Now Redux and revisited in 2000, that was for that was something that came out of him that he wanted to do after 20 years. And he said, you know, look, uh, I was not very happy with uh, the studio and the compromises that I had to make that any filmmaker has to make uh, when, when they're in the in the trenches. And he thought, you know, I really want to go back and revisit it and have that opportunity. So calling it Redux allows him that ability to say, yeah, I'm doing something new. I'm doing something different. I'm not forgetting what people are emotionally attached to and connected to in the original that made it made it special. Uh, thankfully, that audience really and it, and it, and it's interesting that a first version uh, of of Apocalypse is what bankrupt our con company for so long. It took years for people to really uh, sort of have that attachment that we that we 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 have this fan base for it but when we went back and revisited uh, a, a third time apocalypse you know we called it apocalypse final cut uh which i know people always uh, say well final cut really is it really a final cut but for francis i think this is sort of his last sort of a chance that he can get it right where redox was sort of everything in the kitchen sink it was so could throw everything in but final cut was a sort of happy meet middle ground and, and offering offering something that uh it was not quite the the original not quite the redux but something kind of kind of in the middle and and, and again francis calling the new these new titles uh gives them that uh, ability to to play uh with the films he is someone as an artist that films come out at one particular moment and a reason Comp like I said earlier at a compromise uh financial uh, reasons uh how to get it out Godfather 3 was interesting in in how very rushed that film was uh I I think I was telling Andrea the other day I was looking at uh slates they were still shooting film five six months before they released it in Christmas of 1990 
he really rushed it. I don't think he was ever happy or felt it was finalized. Uh, and so that gave him the ability to come 30 years later to say, nah, I still had more more to say and work work on it. So for Francis, things are never, never done. There's always something he likes to kind of open up. And one thing I would also bring up is the with Apocalypse and, and, and Coda, we have that ability because we're calling it something new that we, we can offer the latest, greatest new, new technology. You know, HDR is something that allows us uh, the ability to, to explore those avenues. Film fans, and as Andrea will know, can be, you know, there, there are fans and we, we, we appreciate them and that's, we, we can't dishonor them. So it's, it's hard if we ever make changes when, when Walter does the 5-1, we still, 5-1 for a conversation, we still offer the original mono track or the original theatrical release. We don't discount that. We don't bury it. We don't throw it, throw it away. And we don't say that's, that's it. So same with, uh, you know, the soundtracks, we try to offer the best technology when we, uh, the best, uh, latest whatever's going on at this time with, with HDR. And I think that's sort of an, a fun endeavor that's very much in Francis's spirit of Zoetrope. Uh, he's always kind of riding the bleeding edge of technology. Uh, and that's always sort of either hurt us <laughs> or, but he's never been, he's throw, throw caution in the wind. And, uh, and, and to, to his credit, it's worked in a lot of ways. Sometimes it's, it's, you know, it's been difficult to ride that, but in a lot of ways, it's been successful for us. Chapter two, never finished. Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now isn't the only film he's revisited. You can now get your hands on a newly edited version of Godfather 3, at the time much criticised, but now named The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone, which attempts to reflect his original vision for the story. It's an incredible thing to be able to go back to your story so many years on to recycle, reuse and reshape them. How many of us get a chance to do that? James says that Coppola feels it's essential to give his work the opportunity to evolve. Francis feels that his films are not locked at, at any given point. They, they should have a breath and it, they should be revisited from time to time. He likes to you know, just kind of open up the door and see, see how these films are, can be perceived differently uh, 30 years later. So he likes to go back and tinker. I think he's always sort of the, 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 that inventor at heart, the, a tinkerer, and, and feels that uh, with our other films, you know, uh, with the things might have been seemed as weird and strange, may not be as weird and strange and more acceptable today. So uh, he, he likes to just come back and say, well, let me, let me try, let me push a little harder. Uh, may, maybe I, I was a little nervous and maybe an audience wasn't going to get that at that time, but let me, let me try again. You know, in Dakota, and Godfather Three. Everybody has an opinion about the, the Godfather series, you know, and so it's it's a uh, for him sort of uh, an ability to rectify things. The the rush of time that he had and felt that that whatever came for that release wasn't exactly how he wanted to end that uh, and wanted to refine that. So it took him thirty years to kind of come back and 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 have his sort of final stamp on that. Francis never threw anything away him and george lucas he, he instilled with george the ability keep everything because you know one day you may want to come back to it and certainly they they both did and and so they they always had that forward thinking of one 
it was economics because they were like, well, I might be able to use that music in another film. Why, why record it twice? And so it's, it's out of Francis's uh, economics that he, he feels that uh, why pay for anything twice if you don't have to? So a lot of these cuts came from the ability and it's hard for any filmmaker. They never kept all their dailies or anything. And Francis had all the tapes for Cotton Club or, or, or Godfather. We could just pop them in a tape. Our editor could easily within a day restore everything. And he could say, I could start tinkering that. And then he goes, okay, now I can talk to Paramount because now I can see, be able to tell him that I, I've been working on a new cut. So uh, not, not knowing, he, he's be able to do this in secret, you know, and just kind of tinker in, in his own place. So we, we were lucky that we had 40, 50 years worth of, of material that we could dip into and, and, and give them the ability to, to go back into these films and, and tinker with them. I wonder whether there's something in the fact that when you can hear the money running through the canister, there is um, perhaps a different approach. I've been fortunate enough to, been on, to be on set where 35 mil is being used um, and obviously have been on set when digital is being used. People really bring their A-game. They should bring their A-game every day. But when there's film running through that canister, it's a different sensation on set. Would you agree with that? Yes. But Francis, I know if you looked at like Apocalypse with 3 million feet of film, eh, it was like there was, <laughs> you know, there wasn't any efficiency. He shot everything. A lot of money running through that canister. <laughs> so, I think that's why we went bankrupt for uh, first time around. But... It certainly is. I mean, people have to very be judicious of what, what shots. It's like, I got that shot and move on. And we, we have our producers who are very good at putting on the, the, the reins and say, okay, France, we're fine. Move on. And, Let's get on the shot. <laughs> you know? And as an archivist who's actually receiving this material after things are finished on digital shoots, I do find people are really incredibly intelligent about what they keep and how they keep it. Um, and we do actually have a digital preservation program. I mean, we, we are similar to the film, we're saving everything. We're saving all the outs as well as the final film. Um, because I think that, yeah, there's, there's I think the, that perception that people just leave the camera running and walk away with digital, I, I, I don't think that that's as true as-, as sort of I the, know, I'm sorry. It's true on our uh, point. I have hours and hours of the camera just on. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, maybe that's maybe that's maybe that does happen, but I think in 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 the editing and the post production process, those things are called out and things. Are yes, like, yes, they are. The important stuff is, is it's an assistant editor's nightmare. It is, yes. Picking up on Coppola's desire to go back and look again at The Godfather, it goes without saying that this sort of remake is often met with ire. You're going to hit the headlines, and people are going to be critical. Haters are going to hate. But despite this, Andrea says that any negativity has been dwarfed by the sheer excitement people have for a remake of this caliber. You know, I was lucky enough to be there um, at the Paramount Theater the day that um, the cast was invited to take a look at CODA. And they were all excited to be there. I mean, and you could feel that just being part of the, the Godfather uh, trilogy was a really important part of their lives for every single one of them. And when the movie ended and everyone walked back out into the lobby, there was such an emotion. People were really, you know, there was a, they were dabbing their eyes a little bit, just, you know, and happy to be together. Um, but, you know, it was, you could feel that that's another part, I think, of this story is that all those people lived through wanting to be part of, being part of Godfather already and joining this third one or joining this third one for the first time because they wanted to be a part of this, the Godfather. 
And then having that difficult time where um, the film was so widely criticized and then seeing it now and feeling like it was really a much better version has that emotional thing. And we've seen that, you know, people have come out in the press and talked about it, obviously. Um, so that's another really interesting part of this story too, is that it wasn't just, you know, uh, it, it felt to a certain extent like Francis had this responsibility towards the cast and other people participating in the film to do this new version as well. What I, what I hope uh, is that the time helps with that. I think people were so emotionally wrapped up with what they wanted. And, and this is always a, kind of a, uh, a problem with a lot of Francis's films that it's always judged with the last film. And so it's kind of wrapped up into, you know, it's not apocalypse. It's not a conversation. It's so, uh, you know, Godfather 3 was, was wrapped up in that. But having 30 years difference, I think it found, hopefully found a new audience and people are like, you know what? I'm glad I revisited it. Actually, I, I enjoyed that. And thankfully it wasn't maybe wrapped up with one and two, it was allowed to sit and breathe on its own and, and let people just experience it without having one and two there. So I think time is helpful for, for that. Yeah, we get very emotional. It'd be interesting to revisit the reaction to TV, long running TV show like Game of Thrones in say 15 years time, just to see if people, you know, really did hate the last season as much as they said they did. But, <laughs> but what I think that represents is that we're so passionate about these stories. We have such a connection. It's not like the people that turned up for that screening, Andrea, they weren't gigging actors. It wasn't just to turn up, dial the lines and they were part of something huge, I, right? Yes. And, and that must've had an impact on them it had an impact on its audience i remember sat there in the in the cinema at a very young age watching that astonishing scene as cavalera rusticana is belting out at the very end at the opera house and and it's it's a huge moment it was it's a thing of beauty and i think sometimes our criticism of something is actually love sometimes it is criticism but sometimes <laughs> because we connect so deeply with yeah. characters on long running shows, we probably spend more time with these characters than we do members of our own family. You know, <laughs> True. we're so caught up in them that when changes are made, we might get naturally nervous. But it was great to hear there was there was a lot of love from the cast to the new version. That must have been a special moment. It was a it was such an incredible day. I mean, first of all, middle of the pandemic. I'm actually in a movie theater at all. You know, so there there's a first, and I think every in the cast felt that way too. Remember. Uh, Diane Keaton was just so thrilled. She's like, I'm in a theater. It's just fantastic. It's a beautiful, you know, so there was a joy of just being able to gather in the, you know, the, in, in the church of cinema uh, that we all miss doing so much, um, you know, that helped definitely. And then for these people that have worked together for many, many years, um, you know, and knew each other through this incredible experience, you know, witnessing mm -hmm. this, this new change and, that was um, probably my best Bay of 2020. No, no, no contest. <laughs> because of the length of time between two and three, it was almost impossible to expect us um, to have all had a consistent expectation of what three might be like, given that, you know, one and two came out pretty quickly. But the gap between two and three, you know, we sort of forget that actually that gap was real for those people who were alive when two came out versus those who wasn't, I wasn't right. And it's the kind of, yeah. thing, you know, I may have, there may only have been a very short period of time between me watching, you know, both one, two and three. So it's very difficult to get a consistent 
understanding. And of course- Well, I think that's because, I mean, the, this, the, the films, the Godfather films, you know, they are some of the films that everyone has heard of, right? They are, you know, there are some films people, they're older films and they, they run across them because somebody's told them to watch them and they've never heard of them. But no, th that's not true of these. So they stand in their own sort of pantheon in a way. So when they came out, starts to almost be irrelevant after a while, they stand together. So you're right, we have to remember that. And the, the time difference between the first two and the third is in the movie very much. The, the characters have aged, there's, you know, the way that they are, it's, it's, it's very much part of that. And that's an important part of the story. Um, but you're right, I think it's because Godfather is just such a huge, enormous cultural force. We forget about some of those smaller details like, oh yeah, a few years have passed between two and three. Chapter three, technology advances. It can be difficult to rewatch old films that you loved. Though the stories may have aged well, the technology often hasn't. Just think about how different the original Star Wars trilogy would have looked if George Lucas had access to the technology of today. And that's where the true magic of restoration comes in. The ability to go back in time and modernise a piece of art is critical in allowing it to live on. Through technology, works like Apocalypse Now can find new and younger audiences 40 years after it was made. What's truly fascinating to learn about Apocalypse Now specifically is that Coppola had actually shot the film in a way which planned for the technology of the future. The interesting thing with like Apocalypse in the opening sequence uh, in the six track, most people didn't see it 70 millimeter and they didn't experience in the six track. They, they were able to see it this two track in the 35 millimeter. What made the six track beautiful and revolutionary in 1979 uh, that Francis was pushing for was the ability to have that 360 degree pan around the theaters. But you lost that ability. A very, very small portion didn't experience that. They never experienced it in a home video. So it took a while for technology to catch up to give Francis's original intent uh, that full experience in, in the home uh, video environment. It's also interesting too that we still work with a lot of people in the sound, sound uh, technology uh, field that was with us, Dolby uh, and uh, my, uh, the Meyer Sound, who to design the speakers uh, that brought into the 70 millimeter uh, theaters and helped brought that experience to, to an audience. 40 years later, uh, Meyer's Sound came back to, there was a discussion with, uh, with Meyer's and Francis. Uh, saying, you know, in 1979, Francis wanted he wanted the, the census around. He wanted people to feel uh, the sound. He didn't want them to necessarily hear it. He wanted to feel it. And so we didn't create the sound. That, that, that subwoofer, that low frequency sound was already in the print master. But no speaker technology at that point on home or, or theaters was able to reproduce that. We could experience it on our set, uh, in our mixing stage. Very few people with very expensive systems could experience it. But uh, Myers and Francis said, you know, 40 years, th that technology is available now. Uh, there are really good subwoofers that can go deep into the low frequency and you can feel it. So that arc light sequence where everybody's sunbathing on the, on the P PBR boat and the hairs raise out of their arms, you know, and they're like, what, what is that? What? They don't hear it. They feel this explosion 
first before they hear the bombing that's going on. And it scares the hell out of them. And then Francis said, that is what low frequency is supposed to do. And I want an audience to feel that. I want when people sit in the theater and that comes on, I want their hairs to stand up on their uh, on their arms, you know. Uh, so that was something already available in 79 that we could play with, but wasn't really fully developed in 40 years. And I think we, we try, we keep kind of going back to original intent. Staying on technology, James explains its role within the Godfather remake. What Francis wanted to do with Godfather uh, 3 and Encoda was to upgrade a lot of things. Those, if we looked at the original opticals that were done and cut into those, uh, that was always a sore point. Those that was came out of being rushed, uh, and at the very month we had a couple weeks before releasing, so that they made a decision at that time uh, to just cut dupe negative into to the negative, uh, which was a compromise for him. Usually, all his films are sort of A B roll uh, uh, to create these, uh, not sacrifice the quality and resolution of, of the film. So Francis really wanted to go back here and find all the 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 negative that recreated those opticals, and thankfully, Paramount kept it uh, very well. Uh, <laughs> perfectly clean and we were able to recreate that uh so we brought up three as i said we are not discounting any of the original and all the past iterations that came so we upgraded uh that's the true restoration i think there is we we brought godfather three back up to what francis wanted uh in the quality uh then we could go in and do all the fine tuning and, and, and creating the cut that is uh, code of the death of Michael Corleone. And exploring HDR uh, was very fun. And I think what, what, what people have uh, opinions about HDR and especially in the library titles, but what's fun I think with HDR is always the beauty, of the beauty shots, the landscapes. I always find that the second unit stuff is what really sparkles landscapes. I don't know, if, and I'm sure Andrea has uh, the moments of HDR when it really, really can be very effective. And those are the moments where it's just like, you know, when I first saw that, it was kind of drab. It was it was doopy. It was kind of grainy. It was not, not really sparkles. But we could bring those moments like, yeah, that's a great shot of Sicily. That's a, just a beautiful. So those are those are the fun moments that we could really get those wow moments uh, back back into the film. And I think also uh, with HDR, I think a modern audience expects that. And that's just trying to push uh, our film, uh, all our library titles, we want it to persist longer than us. And we need to, to find a, a new audience. So we have to walk this balance of still respecting the fans, but also trying to figure out a way to, to find uh, a new audience. And I think these, these tools are, are, are what they are. HDR is, is a thing that, that we can explore and have fun with. And what I think a modern audience sort of comes to expect. I think we, um, we have a responsibility to try to match what the audience is actually seeing on their latest kind of displays. Um, if you look at a restoration or a remaster that we did with all great intents, with all available technology, but it's 10 years old, if you look at it on a display that was made this year, it's not going to look that great. Um, the display then that was 10 years old it matched, it looked great. So we have to take that kind of thing into consideration when we're working on these, uh, these projects as well. And um, an HDR allows you, you can use the tool really, the tools really irresponsibly. So you have to be very, very careful to not um, 
you know, you can have any possible flame or a light through a window just take over an entire scene. So you have to be very yeah. careful to sort of this dampen it down where but the, the amount of detail that you can bring out that was always in there, it's kind of similar to what James was talking about, the low frequency. There's stuff that was always there that you're just taking the film off. Yeah, I find sometimes there it, it it suits the cinematographer very well. Like like previous film I mentioned, uh, Apocalypse, where with HDR the film medium was one thing, but the with the release prints that people saw, you lost a lot of resolution in say the background, and it was sort of a, a disservice to Vittorio's work, where he when he sh uh, set up a shot of the people landing on the beach, that shot was composed in a way that it just you could see for miles. But of the release prints, it was very 2D, at very flat. You couldn't see the mountains or the range or the sky and, and the beyond. Uh, so that allowed us to push back and show, wow, it's a beautiful shot, but it's incredible now in HDR. So those are the moments where we, I think HDR does lend itself to this and, and, and is our friend. However, it can go too far. And as Andrea says, you have to be careful because it can change the composition of a shot. Uh, and sometimes, you know, colorists love the skies, they love the clouds, but you're like, you know, our attention is now diverted to that cloud. And like, no, nah, let's dial that down because you're missing the whole point of that scene. So there's a whole discussion that goes on on the color bay uh, to make sure that the original intent of each frame is, is, is still intact and not diverting. Some of the things, in your collection of, you know, the juxtaposition of, of the conversation around technology with the one mm -hmm. around original film stock. Um, not only is that a fragile medium, it also, you know, doesn't exist in at the levels that it, it once used to. We don't produce it um, anymore. If you don't do what you do, I'm not exaggerating here, but if you don't do what you do, some of this stuff will be lost because it will decay, it could get damaged. Um, do you feel that responsibility when you work with this um, with this collection? Absolutely. And I think, you know, we try to take, uh, there's been a lot that's been developed in the last 40 years, really, around film conservation, right? So we know a lot more than we did 40 years ago about how to store film in the optimum environments. And we do now store our film in environments which can't reverse time, can't reverse damage or deterioration, but it can stop it. So it won't fade any longer. There won't be any more uh, acetate film stock deterioration. Um, you can stop it in its tracks. So we've taken that important step um, and paramount to make sure we're taking that. And then, yeah, but it, I think that keeping that original film uh, along with when you, when you do the restorations and you scan it and things like that, we always will hold on to that original film. In fact, when we built out this vault, um, we had cameras, close, you know, closed circuit cameras positioned throughout the vault. And I don't know if I ever told you this, James, I have one trained on the original negative of The Godfather. <laughs> so I can call that up on my computer and just see. Okay. <laughs> Just a little reassurance, you know. Just, you know, you can because, sleep at night. <laughs> because it's really, those are, those are, you know, that's the crown jewels, right? Those are the yeah. most important things. Those original yeah. negatives of the great films that we have. And although we can continue to scan them, restore them, and make another film out from those, we still feel that original, uh, that, you know, dedication and that reverence, if you will, for that original 35 millimeter 
um, cut negative. Conclusion. A massive thank you then to Andrea and James for joining me on the podcast. And to recap, what have we learned? A story is never done being told. There are always new ways of telling it, new plot lines to uncover and new audiences to enjoy it. Whether you want to remake a classic or revisit your own work, revel in this notion. Francis never threw anything away, and neither should you. Keep your old manuscripts, your old notebooks, the stuff that didn't work at the time, the ideas you weren't in love with. You may look at them differently in the future. Apocalypse Now is one of the greats, and yet it took people years to fall in love with it. If your story hasn't yet got the love it deserves, it may simply be a matter of time. And finally, throw caution to the wind at times. If the safe bets aren't doing it for you, try something a little more risky, a bit more outrageous. Just don't go bankrupting yourself. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood, and if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes are released weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Finally, I'd like to take this opportunity to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you for choosing to spend some of your time with the show in 2020, and here's to a brilliant 2021. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing.